Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag Welcome to the 370th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll continue with part 25 of South with Scott by Edward Evans, and then we'll bring to an end Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Let's head to that white continent. Chapter 16. The Pole Attained. Scott's Last Marches. The details of Scott's final march to the Pole, and the heart-rending account of his homeward journey, of Evans's sad death, of Oates' noble sacrifice, and of the martyr-like end of Wilson, Bowers, and Scott himself, have been published throughout the length and breadth of the civilised world. In Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1, the great explorer's journals are practically reproduced in their entirety. Mr. Leonard Huxley, who arranged them in 1913, had had to do with Scott's first work, The Voyage of the Discovery. And as Mr. Huxley had said, these two works needed but little editing. Scott's last fine book was written as he went along, and those of us who have survived the expedition and the Great War, and we are few, are more than proud to count ourselves amongst the company he chose. A synopsis of his march from 87 degrees 35 minutes to the South Pole and a recapitulation of the events which marked the homeward march must certainly find their way into this book, which is, after all, only the husk of the real story. However much the story is retold, and it has been retold by members of the expedition as well as by others, the retelling will never approach the story as told by Scott himself. For the Colonel, one must turn to Volume 1 of Scott's Last Expedition. However, perhaps I can give something of interest. Here is what Little Bowers says in extracts from his diary, given me by his mother. Quote, January the 4th. Packed up sledge with four weeks and three days' food for five men, five sleeping bags, etc. I had my farewell breakfast with Teddy Evans, Crean and Lashley. Teddy was frightfully cut up at not being able to go to the pole. He'd had his heart set on it. I am afraid it was a very poor disappointment to him, and I felt very sorry about it. Poor Teddy. I'm sure it was for his wife's sake he wanted to go. He gave me a little silk flag she had given him to fly on the pole. After so little sleep the previous night, I rather dreaded the march. We gave our various notes, messages and letters to the returning party and started off. They accompanied us for about a mile before turning to see that all was going well. Our party was on ski with the exception of myself. I first made fast to the central span but afterwards connected up to the bow of the sledge, pulling in the centre space between the inner ends of Captain Scott's and Dr Wilson's traces. This was found to be the best place as I had to go my own step. Teddy and party gave us three cheers, and Crean was half in tears. They had a featherweight sledge to go back with, of course, and ought to run down their distance easily. We found we could manage our load easily, and did 6.3 miles before lunch, completing 12.5 by 7.15pm. Our marching hours are nine per day, 
It is a long slog with a well-loaded sledge, and more tiring for me than the others, as I have no ski. However, as long as I can do my share all day and keep fit, it does not matter much one way or the other. We had our first north wind on the plateau today, and a deposit of snow crystals made the surface like sand latterly on the march. The sledge dragged like lead. In the evening it fell calm, and although the temperature was sixteen degrees, it was positively pleasant to stand outside the tent and to bask in the sun's rays. It was our first calm since we reached the summit, too. Our socks and other damp articles which we hang out to dry at night became immediately covered with long feathery crystals, exactly like plumes. Socks, mitts, finisco dry splendidly up here during the night. We have little trouble with them compared with spring and winter journeys. I generally spread out my bag in the sun during the one and a half hours of lunchtime and give the reindeer hair a chance to get rid of the damage done by the deposit of breath and any perspiration during the night. End quote. He seemed to have made no entry for some days after this, but it is interesting to quote later. The Polar Party covered 145 geographical miles that remained in a fortnight. On the 7th of January they reached apparently the summit of the plateau, 10,570 feet, in latitude 88 degrees 18 minutes 70 seconds south, longitude 157 degrees 21 minutes east. But their marches fell short of expectations due to the bad surfaces they met with. Scott kept copious notes in his diary of everything that mattered. He was delighted with his final selection, and as usual, pithy and to the point when describing. Here, for example, is something of what he wrote of his companions. From Scott's Last Expedition, Volume 1. Quote, Wilson. Quick, careful, and dexterous, ever thinking of some fresh expedient to help the camp live. Tough as steel on the traces, never wavering from start to finish. Petty Officer Evans. A giant worker, with a really remarkable headpiece. He's responsible for every sledge, every sledge fitting, tents, sleeping bags, harness, and when one cannot recall a single expression of dissatisfaction with any one of these items, it shows what an invaluable assistant he has been. Bowers. Little Bowers. Remains a marvel. He is thoroughly enjoying himself. I leave all the provision arrangements in his hands, and at all times he knows exactly how we stand. Nothing comes amiss to him, and no work is too hard. Oats. Each is invaluable. Oates had his invaluable period with the ponies. Now he is a foot-slogger, and goes hard the whole time, does his share of camp work and stands the hardships as well as any of us. I would not like to be without him either. So our five people are perhaps as happily selected as it is possible to imagine. End quote. Certainly no living man could have taken Scott's place effectively as leader of our expedition, there was none other like him. He was the heart, the brain, and the master. On January the 11th, just the slightest descent had been made, the height being about 10,540 feet, but it will be noticed that they were getting temperatures as low as 26 degrees below zero. My party on that date got 10 degrees higher thermometer readings. Surface troubles continued to waylay them, and their distances even with five men were disappointing due undoubtedly to this. On 13th, 
both Bowers and Scott write of a surface like sand, and of tugging and straining when they ought to be moving easily. On 14th, some members began to feel the cold unmistakably, and on the following day the whole party were quite done on camping. The saddest note on the outward march is struck on January the 16th, when Bowers sighted a cairn of snow and a black speck, which turned out to be a black flag tied to a sledge runner, near the remains of a camp. This after such a hopeful day on the 15th, when a depot of nine days' food was made only 27 miles from the pole, and Scott wrote in his diary, It ought to be a certain thing now, and the only appalling possibility, the sight of the Norwegian flag for stalling hours. Still, there it was. Dog tracks, many of them, were picked up and followed to the polar area. Scott, Wilson, Oates, Bowers and Seaman Evans reached the South Pole on the 17th of January 1912. A horrible day. Temperature 22 degrees below zero. The party fixed the exact spot by means of one of our little four-inch theodolites, and the result of their careful observations located the pole at a point which only differed from Amundsen's fix by half a mile, as shown by his flag. This difference actually meant that the British and Norwegian observers differed by one scale division on the theodolite, which was graduated to half a minute of arc. Experts in navigation and surveying will always look on this splendidly accurate determination as a fine piece of work by our own people, as well as by the Norwegian expedition. Lady Scott has remarked on the magnificent spirit shown by her husband and his four specially selected tentmates when they knew that Queen Alexandra's little silk union jack had been anticipated by the flag of another nation. Scott and his companions had done their best, and never from one of them came an uncharitable remark. In our Expedition Committee Minute Book, it is recorded that the following were found at the Pole. A letter from Captain Admondson to Captain Scott. Quote, Poleheim, 15th December 1911. Dear Captain Scott, As you are probably the first to reach this area after us, I will ask you kindly to forward this letter to Kin Harkon the 7th, if you can use any of the articles left in the tent, please do not hesitate to do so. The sledge left outside may be of use to you too. With kind regards, I wish you a safe return. Yours truly, Roald Admondson. Also another note. Quote, the Norwegian home, Polheim, is situated in 89 degrees, 58 minutes south, latitude southeast by east, compass 8 miles. Signed, Roald Admondson. 15th December 1911. End quote. The Norwegian explorers' names recorded at Polheim were Roald Admundsen, Olaf Jarland, Helmer Hassan, Oscar Wisting, Sver Hassel. Scott left a note in the Norwegian tent with the names of himself and his companions, and in his diary he agreed that the Norwegian explorers had made thoroughly sure of their work and fully carried out their programme. Scott considered the pole to be 9,500 feet above the barrier, 1,000 feet lower than the plateau altitude in 88 degrees. Bowers took sights to fix the South Pole. On the 19th of January, the northward march was commenced. The party had before them a distance of over 900 miles, statute, and Bowers writes on this date quite nonchalantly, quote, A splendid, clear morning, with fine southwesterly wind blowing, 
During breakfast time I sewed a flap attachment to my green hat, so as to prevent the wind from blowing down my neck on the march. We got up the mast and sail on the sledge and headed north, picking up Adranson's cairn and our outgoing tracks shortly thereafterwards. Along this we travelled until we struck the other cairn, and finally the black flag where we had made our sixth outward camp. We then, with much relief, left all traces of the Norwegian behind, and I headed on my own track until lunch camp, when we had come 8.1 miles. In the afternoon we passed number two cairn of the British route, and fairly slithered along with a fresh breeze. It was heavy travelling for me, not being on ski, but one does not mind being tired if a good march is made. We did sixteen altogether for the day, and so should pick up our last depot tomorrow afternoon. The weather became fairly thick soon afternoon, and at the end of the afternoon there was considerable drift with a mist caused by ice crystals and parhelion. January the 20th. Good sailing breeze again this morning. It is a great pleasure to have one's back to the wind instead of having to face it. It came on thicker later, but we sighted the last depot soon after 1pm and reached it at 1.15pm. The red flag on the bamboo pole was blowing out merrily to welcome us back from the pole, with its supply of the necessaries of life below. We are absolutely dependent on our depots to get off the plateau alive, and so welcome the lovely little cairns gladly. At this one, called the Last Depot, we picked up four days' food, a can of oil, some methylated spirit for lighting purposes, and some personal gear we had left there. The bamboo was bent onto the floor cloth as a yard for our sail, instead of a broken sledge runner as Amundsen's, which we had found at the pole and made a temporary yard of. As we had marched extra long in the forenoon in order to reach the depot, our afternoon march was shorter than usual. The wind increased to a moderate gale with heavy gusts and considerable drift. We would have had a bad time had we been facing it. After an hour I had to shift my harness aft so as to control the motions of the sledge. Unfortunately, the surface got very sandy latterly, but we finished up with 16.1 miles to our credit and camped in a stiff breeze, which rendered itself into a blizzard a few hours later. I was glad we had our depot safe. January 21st. Wind increased to a force 8 during the night, with heavy drift. In the morning it was blizzing like blazes, and marching was out of the question. The wind would have been of great assistance to us, but the drift was so thick that steering a course would have been next to impossible. So we decided to await developments and get underway as soon as it showed any signs of clearing. Fortunately, it was short-lived, and instead of lasting the regulation two days, it went off in the afternoon. And 2.45 found us off with our sail full. It was good running on ski, but soft plodding for me on foot. I shall be jolly glad to pick up my dear old ski. There are nearly 200 miles away yet, however. The breeze fell altogether latterly and I shifted up into my old place, a middle number of the five. Our distance completed was 5.52 miles when camp was made again. Our old cairns are of great assistance. Also the tracks, which are obliterated in places by heavy drift and hard sastrugi, can be followed easily. January 22nd. We came across Evans's sheepskin boots this evening. They were almost covered after their long spell since they fell off the sledge. The breeze was in from the south-southwest, but it got bright and light. 
At lunch camp we had completed 8.2 miles. In the afternoon the breeze fell altogether and the surface acted on by the sun became perfect sand dust. The light sledge pulled by five men came along like a drag without a particle of slide or go in it. We were all glad to camp soon after 7pm. I think we were all pretty tired out. We did altogether 19.5 miles for the day. We are now only 30 miles from the one and a half degree depot and should reach it in two more marches with any luck. January 23rd. Started off with a bit of a breeze which helped us a little. After the first two hours, it increased to force four south-southwest and filling the sail we sped merrily along doing eight and three-quarter miles before lunch. In the afternoon, it was even stronger. I had to go back in the sledge and act as guide and brakesman. We had to lower the sail a bit, but even then she ran like a bird. We were picking up our old cairns famously. Evans got his nose frostbitten, not an unusual thing with him, and as we were all getting pretty cold latterly, we stopped at a quarter to seven, having done fifteen and a half miles. We camped with considerable difficulty, owing to the force of the wind. January 24th. Evans got his fingers all blistered with frostbite. Otherwise we're all well, but thinning, and in spite of our good rations, getting hungrier daily. I sometimes spend much thought on the march, with plans for making a pig of myself at the first opportunity. As this will be after a further walk of 700 miles, they will be a bit premature. It was blowing a gale when we started, and it increased in force. Finally, with the sail half down, one man detached tracking ahead, and Titus and I breaking back, we could not always keep the sledge from overrunning. The blizzard got worse and worse, till having done only seven miles we had to camp soon after twelve o'clock. We had a most difficult time job camping, and it had been blowing like blazes all the afternoon. I think it's moderating now, about 9pm. We are only seven miles from our depot, and the delay is exasperating. January 25th. It was no use turning out at our usual time, 5.45am, as the blizzard was as furious as ever. We therefore decided on a late breakfast, and no lunch unless able to march. We have only three days' food with us, and she'll be in Queer Street if we miss the depot. Our bags are getting steadily wetter, and so are our clothes. It shows a tendency to clear off now, breakfast time, so DV, we may march after all. I am in a tribulation as regards meals now, as we have run out of salt, one of my favourite commodities. It was owing to Atkinson's party taking back an extra tin by mistake from the upper glacier depot. Fortunately, we have some depot there, so I will only have to endure another two weeks without it. 10pm. We have got in a march after all, thank the Lord. Assisted by the wind, we made an excellent run to our one and a half depot, where the big red flag was blowing out of a driving drift. Here we picked up 14 cans of oil and one week's food for five men, together with some personal gear depoted. We left the bamboo and the flag on the cairn. I was much relieved to pick up this depot. Now we had only one other source of anxiety in this endless snow summit, viz. the third depot, in latitude 86 degrees 56 minutes south. In the afternoon we did 5.2 miles. It was a miserable march, 
blizzard all the time and our sledge either sticking on Sastrugi or overrunning the traces. We had to lower the sail half down and Titus and I hung on to her. It was most strenuous work, as well as much colder than pulling a hit. Most of the time we had to break back with all our strength to keep from the sledge overrunning. Bill got a bad go of sun glare from following the track without goggles on. January 26th. This day, last year, we started the depot journey. I did not think so short a time would turn me back into an old hand at polar travelling. Neither did I imagine all the time that I would be returning from the pole. And now, for the last time, let's have some dreams. When Barzai the Wise climbed Hathek Kia to see the Greater Ones dance and howl above the clouds in the moonlight, he never returned. The other gods were there, and they did what was expected. Zenig of Afarat sought to reach unknown Kadath in the cold waste, and his skull is now set in a ring on the little finger of one whom I need not name. But you, Randolph Carter, have braved all things of Earth's dreamland and burned still with the flame of quest. You came not as one curious, but as one seeking his due. Nor have you failed ever in reverence towards the mild gods of Earth. Yet have these gods kept you from the marvellous sunset city of your dreams, and wholly through their own small covetousness? For verily, they have craved the weird loveliness of that which your fancy has fashioned, and vowed that henceforward no other spot should be their abode. They are gone from their castle on unknown Kadath to dwell in your marvellous city. All through its palaces of veined marble they revel by day, and when the sun sets, they go out in the perfumed gardens and watch the golden glory on temples and colonnades, arched bridges and silver-basined fountains and wide streets with blossom-laden urns and ivory statues in gleaming rows. And when night comes, they climb tall terraces in the dew and sit on carved benches of periphery, scanning the stars or lean over pale balustrades to gaze at the town's steep northward slopes, where one by one the little windows in old peaked gables shine softly out with the calm yellow light of homely candles. The gods love your marvellous city, and walk no more in the ways of the gods. They have forgotten the high places of earth, and the mountains that knew their youth. The earth has no longer any gods that are gods, and only the other ones from outer space hold sway on unremembered Kadath. Far away in a valley of your own childhood, Randolph Carter, play the heedless great ones. You have dreamed too well, O oh wise arch-dreamer, for you have drawn dreams' gods away from the world of all men's visions to that which is wholly yours. Having bullied out of your boyhood small fancies a city more lovely than all the phantoms that have ever gone before. It is not well that Earth's gods leave their thrones for the spider to spin on and the realm for others to sway in the dark manner of others. Fain would have the powers from outside bring chaos and horror to you, Randolph Carter, who are the cause of their upsetting. But they know it is by you alone that the gods may be sent back to their world. In that half-waking dreamland which is yours, 
no power of uttermost night may pursue. And only you can send the selfish great ones gently out of your marvellous sunset city, back through the northern twilight, to their wanted place atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste. So, Randolph Carter, in the name of the other gods, I spare you, and charge you to seek that sunset city which is yours, and to send thence the drowry truants for whom the dream world waits. Not hard to find is that roseal fever of the gods, that fanfare of supernatural trumpets and clash of immortal symbols, that mystery whose place and meaning have haunted you through the halls of waking and the gulfs of dreaming, and tormented you with hints of vanished memory and the pain of lost things awesome and momentous. Not hard is to find that symbol and relic of your days of wonder, for truly it is but the stable and eternal gem wherein all that wonder sparkles crystallised to light your evening path. Behold, it is not over unknown seas, but back over well-known years that your quest must go, back to the bright, strange things of infancy and the quick sun-drenched glimpses of magic that old scenes brought to wide young eyes. For you know that your gold and marble city of wonder is only the sum of what you have seen and loved in youth. It is the glory of Boston's hillside roofs and western windows aflame with sunset, of that flower-fragrant common and the great dome on the hill and the tangle of gables and chimneys in the violet valley where the many-bridged Charles flows drowsily. These things you saw, Randolph Carter, when your nurse first wheeled you out in the springtime, and they will be the last things you will ever see with eyes of memory and of love. And there is antique Salem, with its brooding years and spectral marbleheads scaling its rocky precipices into the past centuries, and the glory of Salem's towers and spires, seen from afar from Marblehead's pastures across the harbour against the setting sun. There is Providence, quaint and lordly, on its seven hills over the blue harbour, with terraces of green leading up to steeples and citadels of living antiquity, and Newport, climbing wraith-like from its dreaming breakwater. Arkham, there is also, with its moss-grown gambrel roofs and the rocky rolling meadows behind it, an antediluvian kingsport, hoary with stacked chimneys and deserted quays and overhanging gables, and the marvel of high cliffs and the milky-misted ocean with tolling buoys beyond. Cool vales in Concord, cobbled lands in Portsmouth, twilight bends of rustic New Hampshire roads, where giant elms half-hide white farmhouse walls and creaking well-sweeps. Gloucester's salt wharves and Truro's windy willows, vistas of distant steepled towns and hills beyond hills along the north shore, hushed stony slopes and low ivied cottages in the lee of huge boulders in Rhode Island's back country. Scent of the sea and fragrance of the fields, spell of the dark woods and joy of the orchards and gardens at dawn. These, Randolph Carter, are your city, for they are yourself. New England bore you, and into your soul she poured a liquid loveliness which cannot die. This loveliness, 
moulded, crystallised, and polished by years of memory and dreaming, is your terraced wonder of elusive sunsets. And to find that marble parapet, with curious urns and carven rail, and descend at last these endless balustraded steps to the city of broad squares and prismatic fountains, you need only turn back to the thoughts and visions of your wistful boyhood. Look, through that window shine the stars of eternal night. Even now they're shining above the scenes you have known and cherished, drinking of their charm that they may shine more lovely over the gardens of dream. There is Antares. He's winking at this moment over the roofs of Tremont Street, and you could see him from your window on Beacon Hill. Out beyond those stars yawn the gulfs from whence my mindless masters have sent me. Some day you too may traverse them. But if you are wise, you will beware such folly. For of those mortals who have been and returned, only one preserves a mind unshattered by the pounding, clawing horrors of the void. Terrors and blasphemies gnaw at one another for space, and there is more evil in the lesser ones than in the greater. Even as you know from the deeds of those who sought to deliver you into my hands, whilst I myself harboured no wish to shatter you, and would indeed have helped you hither long ago had I not been elsewhere busy, and certain that you would find yourself the way. Shun, then, the outer hells, and stick to the calm, lovely things of your youth. Seek out your marvellous city and drive thence the recreant great ones, sending them back gently to those scenes which are their own youth, and which wait uneasy for their return. Easier even than the way of dim memory is the way I will prepare for you. See, here comes hither a monstrous Shantak, led by a slave who, for your peace of mind, had best keep invisible. Mount, and be ready. There, your gash the black will help you on the scaly horror. Steer for that brightest star just south of its zenith. It is vaguer, and in two hours will be just above the terrace of your sunset city. Steer for it only until you hear a far-off singing in the high ether. Higher than that lurks madness. So rein your shantak when the first note lures. Look then back to earth, and you will see shining the deathless altar flame of Iridna from the sacred roof of the temple. That temple is in your desirate sunset city. So steer for it before you heed the singing and are lost. And when you draw nigh the city, steer for the same high parapet whence of old you scanned the outspread glory, prodding the Shantak until he cry aloud. That cry the great ones will hear and know as they sit on their perfumed terraces, and there will come upon them such a homesickness that all of your city's wonders will not console them for the absence of Kadath's grim castle and for the shent of eternal stars that crown it. Then you must land amongst them with the Shantak, and let them see and touch that noisome and hypocellophaic bird, meanwhile discoursing to them of unknown Kadath, which you will so lately have left, and telling them how its boundless halls are lovely and unlighted, where of old they used to leap and reveal in supernal radiance and the Shantak will talk to them in the manner of Shantaks, 
but it will have no powers of persuasion beyond the recalling of elder days. Over and over must you speak to the wandering great ones of their home and their youth, until at last they will weep and ask to be shown the returning path that they have forgotten. Thereat can you loose the weighted Shantank, sending him skyward with the homing cry of his kind, hearing which the great ones will prance and jump with antique mirth, and forthwith stride after the loathly bird in a fashion of gods, through the deep gulfs of heaven and to Cadas' familiar towers and domes. Then will the marvellous sunset city be yours to cherish and inhabit for ever, and once more will earth's gods rule the dreams of men from their accustomed seat. Go now, the casement is open, and the stars await outside. Already your Shantak wheezes and titters with impatience. Steer for Vega through the night, but turn when the singing sounds. Forget not this warning, lest horrors unthinkable suck you into the gulf of shrieking and ululant madness. Remember the other gods. They are great and mindless and terrible, and lurk in the outer voids. They are good gods to shun. Hi, Aishanta Nuya, you are off. Send back Earth's gods to their haunts of unknown Kadath, and pray to all space that you may never meet me in my thousand other forms. Farewell, Randolph Carter, and beware, for I am Nyarlathrotep, the crawling chaos. And Randolph Carter, gasping and dizzy on this hideous shantak, shot screamingly into space towards the cold blue glare of Boreal Vega, looking but once behind him at the clustered and chaotic turrets of the Onyx Nightmare, wherein still glowed the lone lurid light of that window above the air and the clouds of Earth's dreamland. Great polypus horrors slid darkly past, and unseen bat-wings beat multitudinous about him. But still he clung to the unwholesome mane of that loathly and hypocellophaic scaled bird. The stars danced mockingly, almost shifting now and then to form pale signs of doom, that one might wonder one had not seen and feared before. And ever the winds of nether howled, a vague blackness and loneliness beyond the cosmos. Then, through the glittering vault ahead, there fell a hush of portent, and all the winds and horrors slunk away as night things slink away before the dawn. Trembling in waves that golden wisps of nebula made weirdly visible, there rose a timid hint of far-off melody, droning in faint chords that our own universe of stars knows not. And as that music grew, the Shantak raised its ears and plunged ahead, and Carter likewise bent to catch each lovely strain. It was a song, but not the song of any voice. Night and the spheres sang it, and it was old when space and Nyarlathrotep and the other gods were born. Faster flew the Shantak, and lower bent the rider, drunk with the marvel of strange gulfs, and whirling in the crystal coils of outer magic. Then came, too late, the warning of the evil one, the sardonic caution of the daemon Legate, who had bidden the seeker beware the madness of that song. Only to taunt had Nyarlathrotep marked out that way of safety and the marvellous sunset city, 
only to mock at that black messenger revealed the secret of these truant gods, whose steps he could so easily lead back at will. For madness and the void's wild vengeance are Nyarlathotep's only gifts to the presumptuous, and frantic though the rider strove to turn his disgusting steed, that leering, tittering shantak coursed on impetuous and relentless, flapping its great slippery wings in malignant joy and headed for those unhallowed pits with uh, no dreams reach. At last, amorphous blight of nethermost confusion, where bubbles and blasphemes at infinity's centre, the mindless daemon sultan, Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud. Unswerving and obedient to the foul legate's orders, that hellish bird plunged onward through shoals of shapeless lurkers and caperers in darkness, and vacuous herds of drifting entities that poured and groped and groped and poured. The nameless larvae of the outer gods, those are like them blind and without mind, and possessed of singular hungers and thirst. Onward, unswerving and relentless, the tittering hilariously to watch the chuckling and hysterics into which the risen song of night and the spheres had turned, that eldritch scaly monster bore its helpless rider. Hurtling and shooting, cleaving the uttermost rim and spanning the outermost abysses, leaving behind the stars and the realms of matter, and darting meteor-like through stark formlessness towards those inconceivable unlighted chambers beyond wherein Azathoth gnaws shapeless and ravenous amidst the muffled maddening beat of vile drums and the thin monotonous whine of accursed flutes. Onward, onward through the screaming, cackling, and blackly populous gulfs. And then from some dim, blessed distance, there came an image and a thought to Randolph Carter the Doomed. Too well had Nyarlathotep planned his mocking and his tantalising, for he had brought up that which no gusts of icy terror could quite efface. Home. New England. Beacon Hill. The Waking World. For know you that your golden marble city of wonder is only the sum of what you have seen and loved in your youth. The glory of Boston's hillside roofs and western windows aflame with the sunset. Of the flower-fragrant common and the great dome on the hill and the tangle of gables and chimneys in the violet valley where the many-bridged Charles flows drowsily. This loveliness, moulded, crystallised, and polished by years of memory and dreaming, is your terraced wonder of elusive sunsets. And to find that marble parapet with curious urns and carven rail, and to send at last those endless balustraded steps to the city of broad squares and prismatic fountains, you need only to turn back to the thoughts and the visions of your wistful boyhood. Onward, onward, dizzily onward to ultimate doom through the blackness where sightless feelers poured and slimy snouts jostled and nameless things tittered and tittered and tittered. But the image and the thought had come, and Randolph Carter knew clearly that he was dreaming and only dreaming and that somewhere in the background the world of waking and the city of his infancy lay still. Words came again. You need only to turn back to the thoughts and visions of your wistful boyhood. Turn. 
turn, blackness on every side, but Randolph Carter could turn. Thick, though the rushing nightmare that clutched his senses, Randolph Carter could turn and move. He could move, and if he chose, he could leap off the evil Shantak that bore him hurtlingly onward at the orders of Nyarlathotep. He could leap off and dare those depths of night that yawned interminably down, those depths of fear whose terrors yet could not exceed the nameless doom that lurked waiting at Chaos's core. He could turn and move and leap. He could, he would, he would, he would. Off that vast hypocellophaic abomination leapt the doomed and desperate dreamer, and down through the endless voids of sentient blackness he fell. Aeons reeled. Universes died and were born again. Stars became nebulae, and nebulae became stars. And still Randolph Carter fell through those endless voids of sentient blackness. Then, in the slow creeping course of eternity, the utmost cycle of the cosmos churned itself into another futile completion, and all things became again as they were unreckoned calpers before. Matter and light were born anew as space once had known them, and comets, suns, and worlds sprang flaming into life, though nothing survived to tell that they had been and gone, been and gone always and always, back to no first beginning. And there was a firmament again, and a wind and a glare of purple light in the eyes of the falling dreamer. There were gods, and presences and wills, beauty and evil, and the shrieking of noxious night robbed of its prey. For through the unknown ultimate cycle had lived a thought and a vision of a dreamer's boyhood, and now there were remade a waking world, and an old cherished city to body and to justify these things. Out of the void, Sanak the violet gas had pointed the way and archaic Nodens was bellowing his guidance from unhinted depths. Stars swelled to dawns, and dawns burst into fountains of gold, carmine and purple, and still the dreamer fell. Cries rent the ether as ribbons of light beat back the fiends from outside, and hoary Nodens raised a howl of triumph when Nyarlathotep, close on his quarry, stopped baffled by a glare that seared his formless hunting horrors to grey dust. Randolph Carter had indeed descended at last the wide memorial flights to his marvellous city, for he was come again to the fair New England world that had wrought him. So too the organ chords of morning's myriad whistles, and dawn's blaze thrown dazzling through purple panes by the great gold dome of the state house on the hill. Randolph Carter leapt shoutingly awake within his Boston room. Birds sang in hidden gardens, and the perfume of trellised vines came wistful from arbours his grandfather had reared. Beauty and light glowed from classic mantle and carven cornice and walls grotesquely figured, while a sleek black cat rose yawning from hearthside sleep that his master's start and shriek had disturbed. And vast infinities away, past the gate of deeper slumber, and the enchanted wood and the garden lands and the Caesarean Sea, and the twilight reaches of Iquanoch, the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep strode brooding into the onyx castle atop unknown Kadath in the cold wastes, 
and taunted insolently. The mild gods of earth whom he had snatched abruptly from their scented revels in the marvellous sunset city. And that's all for today. Except to remind you of my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast as MP3s, but all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran, also Lost on Venus by Edgar Rice Burroughs, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. I'm also currently recording, doing a rush job in fact, of the US government report known as The Durham Report, which covers the bad behaviour of the FBI during its 2016 investigation of President Trump. Please go to patreon.com and search for Felbrick, as F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Till next time. <laughs>